we are super excited to have you back. Uh, well, I am honored. And let me tell you that after doing the last one, I was walking down the hall in my hospital and the medical students were like, oh, and I was like, <laughs> what's going on? They're like, we heard the criticizers. And I was like, oh, wow, this is like, I've never had this response to any interview I've done, you know? Amazing. The <laughs> I... interview, did anyone stop me and ask me how I was doing in a British accent? No, but after you guys, it was like, hey, we know her. And I was like, okay. Continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. And here we go. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. This is Justin Burke. I am joined tonight by our outstanding guest, Audrey Tremulay, to discuss Kawasaki disease. We also have Nick Lee in the house as our producer. Say hey, Nick. What's up? Welcome, Nick. And then, of course, Chris the Chew Man Chew. It's me. Love the energy, Chris. <laughs> but uh, before we get started learning so much about Kawasaki disease, Chris, what do we do on this show? Well... We are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast, where we interview leading experts in the fields to bring you clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answer lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. So you might remember Dr. Adriana Tremolay from our Miss C episode. She is a professor of pediatrics at the University of California, San Diego. She is a pediatric infectious disease specialist and the associate director of the Kawasaki Disease Research Center at UCSD and Rady Children's Hospital in San Diego. As such, she follows nearly 2,000 children with Kawasaki disease, the most common cause of acquired heart disease in children. Her research focuses on developing tests to diagnose Kawasaki disease and treatments to care for children with this illness. Now, Justin, don't be too rash, and let's get started with this episode. <laughs> Non-specific pun. <laughs> Before we go into all of the content, we need to come up with some new to to know you questions because today we are oh welcome back by Audrey Tremulay. For people who did not hear you on our wonderful MISC episode, Miss C episode, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I am a California native, born and raised Valley girl. I'm a pediatric infectious disease specialist here at Rady Children's Hospital in San Diego, where I've been for the last 17 years. Excellent. And I'll, I'll start off with a question if other people want to think of one too, because we're, we're going to go off script. So this is going to be, this is going to be improv. This, Chris and I are taking this improv class together. So this is really going to where, be where we're going to uh, thrive. We're not taking the improv class, but that's okay. um, <laughs> uh, You know, how about COVID related? Can you, in, in a year of 2020, which has been somewhat pessimistic, maybe a positive, a positive antidote. Is there anything that's been a really great part of your year this year, clinically, personally, or in some other way, a, a good thing that has happened or that you've seen happen that you'd like to share or be willing to share with us? Yeah, I would like to say from a research perspective that it has brought together a lot of people to collaborate in a way that we weren't doing before this whole thing happened. I mean, we've always known the world's a small place, 
but it got a whole lot smaller with the pandemic. And we quickly realized as clinicians and as scientists that you need to ask somebody that's seen this to see if you can learn, because there's no textbook, right? So you have to just go to your best buddy and say, hey, did you see this? And what do you think this is? And how do we treat it? And how do we deal with it? Um, because everything is new. And so to me, the I have to say that the best part from my career has been the number of collaborations that this has created in order to ultimately bring better patient care um, to the bedside. I, I love that. And I feel like I've seen that in a lot of different aspects of medicine and it's very humbling, but it's nice to find a silver lining of bringing yeah. people together in tragedy. I, I totally hear that. Yeah. And on the personal side, I think my kids put up with me a lot more than they used to because <laughs> they have no choice. Also resilience training uh, all the way around. I'm the only entertainment. So, you know, you got to find me entertaining. So it's all good. So my question would be, what is some good advice that you think that people should use to keep themselves mentally well during this time? Oh, I think you still have to have an outlet. So for me, I have been, I think I mentioned this on the first podcast. I've been, I've been dancing flamenco for like 25 years. And when shutdown happened, besides my kids' school and work and my husband's job as an ER doc going crazy, I was really worried about what was going to happen to my dance classes. I was like, oh, what's, is the studio going to close? Are we? So we went online for a while. We're now kind of intermittently like three people in the studio every once in a while. Everyone's, you know, basically in full PPE trying to do their dance class. But it's been an incredible outlet. And I think that you have, you know, just because your gym and your usual thing closes down, you still have to find a way to be sane. And for each person, you know, it, it, it may be something different, but we're just not meant to be alone. We're not meant to be just at home. We're not meant to be socially isolated. And I think it's super important to find still despite everything, something that becomes your little ray of sunshine that you can look forward to. Love it. I love that. Well, Nick, what do you got, man? Yeah, Nick, you got anything? Uh, yeah, I was thinking. I, <laughs> I guess I would say that uh, normally we ask for a book recommendation, but maybe I'll ask for a, like a guilty pleasure recommendation Ooh, of anything that you found. In, like, a <laughs> oh, wow, that was easy. That was quick. She <laughs> knew it. Ready, unprepared. Yeah. Okay, and they're not a sponsor of the program, but I'm going to go with C's Candies. Mm. Right. I don't know what are C's candies. I don't know what these are. Stores in the mall, right? Is that a California thing? It is kind of a California thing. And so when that chocolate store closed down here, I was online feverishly trying to figure out how to order it online. But it's not like being in the store where you can actually pick the different kinds and make up your own box. And you know. Uh, over, you know, 47 years of eating C's candies, I can tell you that I know every one of them by the outside look of the candy. So wow. I really missed it, but now they're back. And so, you know, I figure I eat some C's candies and then I go to my dance class and it all kind of evens out, but that's my night. pleasure. Yep. Yep. And, um, you know, we love to, to cook in my house. My husband's a great cook chef actually. And, 
my girls, I've gotten them in the kitchen. And so we're eating a lot. We're trying not to gain the COVID-20 and mm. trying to do some exercise. The COVID-19, yeah. No, COVID-20. Okay. It's the 20 pounds. It, is, it is the 20, the 20, COVID-20 from COVID-19. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> um, great. I think, wait, great job. On the spot, uh, get to know your questions. No problem. Sorry to put you on the spot. And this is great. Let's... um. Let's uh, let's hit into some content, and we have our excellent producer Nick Lee on with us. And Nick has come up with a great case for you. So, Nick, why don't you take us away with our first case from Cashlot Children's? Sounds good. So we we have a four year old Ruby Tongue who is sent from the pediatrician's office to the emergency department for a persistent fever over the course of about six days. More recently. The fathers noticed some eye redness and a rash kind of all over her body. They called their pediatrician originally, who kind of recommended that they come into the emergency department. When you see them in the emergency department, they're febrile still, but hemodynamically stable, blood pressure is okay. The exam, in addition to the skin redness and the eye redness, is notable for some cervical lymphadenopathy too that you feel in her neck. So I guess the first question that we have is we're not gonna we're not gonna bury the lead here. Is that does this patient have Kawasaki disease? <laughs> So in terms of when you, I mean, this is kind of like my 3 a.m. call, right? This is what the emergency room is calling about every night when I'm on call. And what I always say, there's, a, there's actually a proverb that says the, the eyes cannot see what the mind does not know. And there's a Spanish correlation to that as well, that you kind of like, if you don't really know about it, you, you'll never be able to detect it. The phrase in Spanish is, el que no sabe es como el que no ve, Right. The one who doesn't know is like the one who cannot see. So it's that same kind of thought of you have to know something in order to be able to recognize it. So I think that us talking about KD ad nauseum is good because it puts it on the list. So the eyes cannot see what the mind does not know. So to me, it's not about you knowing immediately whether this is Kawasaki disease. It's about having certain things on the list that you can't miss. Right, because our job as pediatricians is to be able to tell sick from not sick and things that we need to fix versus things that kind of doesn't matter if you didn't diagnose it, who would care, right? But it's important to be able to, to diagnose somebody with something that you can do something about, especially if not diagnosing it means that kid's going to have long-term consequences. So that's why having KD on the list matters. It's not because you have to be right every time, it's because you have to just think about it. So in that regard, what I would say for a kid who's got, and frankly, whatever number of days of fever. So the whole thing about five days of fever is kind of not true. You can have three days of fever and still have Kawasaki disease. And you don't have to wait till five days of fever, because as I say, what are you waiting for aneurysms? So when you've got enough to diagnose, you diagnose, right? But so you've got some kid who's got a very clever name as Ruby Tongue. So it's all given away. Yeah. So any number of days of fever, some eye redness and some rash. And so what I would ask is a few more questions that help you kind of figure out the difference between KD and not KD. So Kawasaki disease is on the list. Why? Because the febrile child. And now you've got a couple of extra things that are also seen. So it's always there, just like all your hemonc stuff and all your weird zebras are on there. But then you start to add things like eye redness. So I would say, are both eyes red? Did they both get red at the same time? Was one red before the other, right? Is it more adenovirus-like? Is there discharge that's happening? 
you know, somebody else been sick is this kind of like the polo player, water polo player in the summer that's more likely to have adeno than KD. And then the rash, like what does the rash look like? Where is it located? Where is it accentuated, right? The geoaccentuation that happens in Kawasaki disease and toxin-mediated illness. So I don't know yet if it's KD, but it's sure on the list. And as a follow-up, the eye redness, I feel like I the it's very specific. Is that right? So you mentioned one, then the other is a little more consistent with a viral etiology like adenovirus. And my the the bulbar or the limbic sparing portion of of KD. Is that a real thing? Is that something where if if it's you know not limbic sparing, it's not KD or vice versa? Right. So the limbus is a part of the eye that's avascular. And so the reason that the limbus is spared is because there's no inflammation actually in the conjunctiva in KD. So it's actually a misnomer to call it conjunctive itis. There's no itis. There's no inflammation. We know this from like conjunctival biopsies that were done early on in KD. There's no inflammation. So it's like there's injection, but there's no inflammation. So the limbus is still present. When the limbus actually is obliterated it's when there's more inflammation of the eye it's not like you know it's not like one is definite one is not but if the limbus is is gone it means that the conjunctiva are probably more inflamed right and so the conjunctiva rises up and the limbus then gets obscured and that redness goes all the way to the iris so in kd when you see perilimbic sparing, it's more likely to be Kawasaki disease with those red eyes than not. But that said, we do sometimes see Kawasaki disease where you're like, why can't I see that limbic sparing? Or more likely, it's that in order to see limbal sparing, the kid has to be still. And how many three-year-olds do we know that are still when you walk in the room? <laughs> you're the last person they want to see. So when you see it, it's great. It is somewhat pathognomonic, more for KD when you see it, but the 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 fleeting, you know, I took a look at the eye exam, which is most of our common pediatric eye exam. If you don't see it, doesn't mean that you don't have KD. Fair. And then just to clarify, the discharge also more consistent with a viral etiology rather than Kawasaki's, correct? Right. So you've got an inflammation that causes white cells to be recruited. It causes pus and then it causes discharge, which is not, again, what's happening in KD. So it's a dry eye. And that's a little bit more pathognomonic for me for, for something other than Kawasaki disease. So the things to me that kind of exclude KD, and you can have two things, but you really don't see, we don't see exudative pharyngitis in Kawasaki disease. And that's, again, more white cells being recruited in a true infection there, right? That's more toxin, illness, EBV, adeno kind of thing. And then true eye discharge, like really goopy eye discharge is one eye before the other. That's usually going to be some viral infection as compared to Kawasaki disease. What are some other symptoms that you, that you find that are very specific for Kawasaki when you're sort of looking at all these different types of things that could become inflamed or look inflamed? Yeah, so there's some kind of subtle things that we look for on exam that help us. So besides the eye discharge, eye redness, lack of congruence there, also the oropharyngeal stuff, we also look for like palatal petechiae. Kind of hard to see, but of course, it's going to be more with like your staph or strep infection, right? So the distribution of the rash in KD, we see sometimes GU accentuation. It's kind of like you see the rash everywhere, 
and then you take off the diaper or you pull down the underwear in that in the school age kid and you go, wow, that's really red as compared to all the spots and dots they have everywhere else. The other thing is where the rash is located. If it's located on the palms of the hands and the soles of the feet, not the redness we see, but the dots actually being on the palms of the hands and the soles of the feet, that's much more a viral illness than what you would see with KD. The other thing too, is we ask about how the kids are walking. Now, when kids are sick and febrile, they're gonna to wanna to be held a lot. But some children with Kawasaki disease get arthritis. And so like, if you're gonna change their diaper, if they're that age group, they'll cry bloody murder when you're doing abduction in order to change the diaper. Or you've got the child that was walking, you know, you've got your toddler age kid that was walking, but now is really refusing to walk. Or the older school age kid that's complaining about knee pain, usually referred from the hip because there can be hip arthritis. So that combination of fever, rash, and red eyes with arthritis, you know, or arthralgias is more likely to be KD than it is to be something like adenovirus. A quick clarification on the RAS insinuation in the GU area. Is that also in the axillary? Because I know that's always, you know, I've done that as teaching for the pastia lines with a scarlet fever. Is right. it similar in a similar pathology or, or absolutely not? The axillary lines are actually a great way to differentiate KD from strep. Yeah. So the things in the axilla and, and in the flexor joints that we see with toxin-mediated illness is generally not seen with Kawasaki disease. Both of those types of illnesses can cause GU accentuation, actually some GU peeling. But in the acute phase, those things of Pastia's line are generally not what we see in KD. And you can have any, so people always say, what kind of rash is a KD rash? It's everything except vesicular. It can even be like pustular. We sometimes see like micropustular rashes like in the upper extremities. So it's kind of anything except a true vesicular rash. And the other clue just to bring up before I forget as well is what happens later. So, you know, I'd had clinic today and one of the kids that showed up was a patient where they called me because they had had, the child had had a febrile illness with a rash, some red eyes had been seen in the PMD's office, had a negative COVID test, and then about seven or eight days after having the initial febrile period, um, started to have some peeling of the fingers and toes. And so there are, you know, all sorts of things can cause peeling, but in KD, and actually also with, um, with hand, foot and mouth disease, with enterovirus, kids get very thick peeling just underneath the nail bed of the, either the fingers or toes. That's where that word periungual, right? So right around the nail bed comes from. It doesn't start on the pads of the fingers. It doesn't start in the palm of the hands. It can extend to that point, but it really starts underneath the nail bed. So we'll have kids that are, you know, they're seen by their pediatrician. They're told they have any combination of viral illnesses. And then the parents, a couple of weeks later, will say, well, what is this peeling? And so we've had dermatologists refer them back to us, pediatricians, oh. um, ER docs. And so that um, can be a sign of missed KD in some patients. So that, that, that peeling happens a few days later and can be pretty pathognomonic for KD. So I, I once had an infectious disease attending tell me um, almost all the patients that he sees that he diagnosed with KD are always irritable. So if mm. the kid is not irritable, then 
the, li the likelihood in, in his mind was they probably don't have KD. How, how often do you see this happen? Yeah. You diagnosed. So I wish I could say that that's a clinical criteria that we can always hang our hat on, but unfortunately it's not. So it is true that KD patients can be quite ill, quite inflamed, and that will cause a lot of irritability. But if the child is sitting up in bed and happy, it doesn't mean that they can't have Kawasaki disease. Kind of like the Paralympic sparing, right? If you see it, you're kind of like, ooh, yeah, that helps me here. But the absence of it doesn't make it exclude the diagnosis. But it is, it is helpful in, in some kids when you're trying to figure out what's going on. And I think we see it in the younger kids and we see it in the kids that are severely inflamed. I think this is great that we're starting the conversation with some of these pathognomonic findings, including the limbit sparing, not conjunctivitis, limbit sparing eye redness, the, the nonspecific but not vesicular rash that has GU assinuation, some arthralgias, and making sure we're looking for some of the other subtle symptoms of viral or other bacterial etiology. So making sure we're not seeing any paddle petechiae. And then also looking for the, after a presumed viral illness, the nail peeling or the periuncal nail peeling, in order to make the diagnosis, what are the core common criteria that we're, we're often looking at? And how, I guess, how much do you rely on that? I mean, it sounds like there are, clearly are other things. Are yeah. you, do you go in and say, all right, guys, here's the five we're looking for. How does yeah. that, how does that go into the decision-making process? Yeah. So at the end of the day, this is a clinical diagnosis. And so we are looking for the clinical signs of KD. So if you walk into a room and a kid has fever, rash, red eyes, swollen hands and feet, red lips, and a red tongue, you're, you know, you're pretty much there. So the, it's the having four out of the five criteria. So of the eyes, the lips and tongue, the mucocutaneous, the cervical lymphadenopathy, the rash and the extremities, right? If you have four out of those five, you kind of go, okay, that's Kawasaki disease unless I find something else that I think is causing this, right? So the only thing that sometimes gets a little tricky is if you've got a child who's shocky in the ICU and you're worried about toxic shock syndrome. But otherwise you kind of walk in the room and you go, ooh, textbook looks like it. Where it gets dicey and concerning is with the kids that are incomplete where they have like the one that you described fever and they have some eye redness and a rash, but there's really nothing else there. And by nothing else, I mean, you sat down in a chair and you asked mom or dad, do you have any photos on your iPhone? Cause the, you know, the phones are great. Parents take pictures of all sorts of stuff and you like scroll through and you're like, Oh, criteria one, two, three, four, cause they can come and go. And sometimes by the time the child's in the hospital, stuff is kind of already subsiding. So you have to know what happened, not only what's present. And you get credit for what happened in the last few days, right? So, but let's say that you sit down, there's nothing else besides the eyes and the rash, and you're trying to figure out, is this kid KD or is it Adenor or what else? This is where the kind of the next phase, and this is where the American Heart Association has a pretty good algorithm that looks at labs. So, you know, you look at the labs and there are some labs that when you start to put them together, it builds a case for KD. And the first branch point is inflammation. So is the SED rate or CRP? And it's or, not and. Is the SED rate or CRP elevated? 
And the numbers are arbitrary, right? I mean, I think it's like a fed rate of 40 and a CRP of three, but no one yet has done the study to figure out whether you've got a CRP of 2.7 and a set rate of, you know, of 25 and you suddenly don't have KD. No one's done that. So the first branch point is inflammation. And then from there, you go on to what they call supplemental laboratory criteria. So is your white count up? Is your platelet count up? Do you, are you hypoalbuminemic? Are you hyponatremic? Do you have sterile pyuria, right? Where you have some white cells and some Luke esterase, but you don't have nitrates because there's no bacteria there. And, and just, you know, is your ALT up? GGT is not on the list in the AHA, but it will be because it's a great lab and it's an it's a important lab that we always ask people to check and very helpful. And so it's kind of like the clinical plus the labs. And that algorithm was created actually not to diagnose KD, but to not miss anyone with an aneurysm. So it turns out that three quarters of kids, even if we did nothing and never gave them IVIG, would actually probably be fine. They wouldn't get aneurysms and they probably have no long-term consequences, but I don't have a crystal ball. So I don't know which you know quarter of kids is going to have a problem. So we treat everybody, right? But it turns out that if you follow those criteria from the AHA and someone meets criteria for incomplete KD and you can't find a better reason, right? You did your PCR, the adenos negative, they don't really meet like criteria for EBV, you swab them, they're not strapped, they don't have a site for staph infection, all those kinds of things. Then if you say they meet criteria, no better explanation, right? Then those kids, if you treat them, you're actually going to do them a favor because you will catch everybody that has an aneurysm. It's very, very sensitive for making sure that it grabs everybody that potentially could have an aneurysm. So that's why the incomplete criteria are helpful, you know, and, and sometimes we're, we're, as I always say, we're always willing to be wrong with the diagnosis and to reconsider, but it's important to, to understand those incomplete criteria and to keep KD on the list. So I have a few questions. So you said the reason why they have these criteria is really to make sure we don't miss aneurysm. Um, is that the main reason why we're trying to diagnose KD? Is it, are there other complications that we have to worry about if we, if we miss KD entirely? Yeah. So the main concern we have for Kawasaki disease are the coronary artery aneurysms, because if those are left unknown, and there are cases all the time about 20 year olds that have heart attack. And one of the causes of that is missed KD as a kid. That person wasn't diagnosed, developed an aneurysm. Over time, that aneurysm became stenotic or it thrombosed and led to an MI in a young adult. So it, KD is the leading cause of acquired heart disease in children. And that's mostly characterized by the aneurysms. But it turns out that it's not the only issue what we've learned rather recently is that the heart muscle can also be affected by KD. And we have had patients that have had aneurysms, okay, they had bad KD, but what got them into trouble, and in fact, we've had a few kids that have gone on to heart transplant, has been not the aneurysms clotting off and having an MI, but the heart muscle fibrosing and becoming weak and those patients going into heart failure. So it turns out that decades ago, 
the in Japan, there was a study where they did myocardial biopsies in a small number of children that had KD. We would never be able to do this now. And what they found was that of the handful of kids that they did this in, all of them had some level of subclinical myocarditis on pathology. So this disease, even if we can't see it by echo or EKG or whatever, however, we usually you know, can assess myocarditis, all these patients have inflammation of the myocardium. And in some, it becomes a lifelong issue and can actually lead to heart failure. I have two questions on that. Going back to the labs, you mentioned we use the incomplete criteria to find people at risk for these aneurysms. All of those labs seem to be measures of inflammation. Is there any evidence that the more severe inflammation or the the worse those labs are, the higher the likelihood of coronary aneurysm? And also, is there a specific progression that we see either in symptoms or in the development of coronary artery aneurysms? Yeah. So in terms of the progression of the, that we kind of see, so the first thing that usually shows up is fever. And then it can be any mismatch of these different things. So some kids get the cervical lymph node first, and then they get treated as cervical lymphadenitis. Um, and it turns out that they never had lymphadenitis. What they had was lymph node first KD. So that's one thing that sometimes shows up in patients, and then they develop the rest of the stuff. And so we usually see that clinical course. And then the labs have an actual, they have an interesting course themselves. So usually the CRP will go up first, said rate kind of follows, platelet counts kind of follow after the, and everything else kind of is in the first few days. So we wrote a paper years ago, and it's probably one of the most useful things we've done because it actually goes over the trajectory of what the labs change over time. And you really do see a kinetics of it. So, you know, I get called like, oh, this patient's only been sick for three days and their sed rate's only 30. And I was like, well, maybe they haven't even mounted much of an immune response. So watch them and see how they progress, right? In terms of the labs though, I will say that as the labs get worse and at certain points, you're kind of excluding certain things. So it's hard to have a common viral illness if your sed rate's 90, right? Or if your CRP on milligrams per deciliter is 12. And so I think that, you know, while there are certain illnesses like adenovirus that can really mimic KD and bacterial infections in terms of the labs, there are other labs that really don't. So if that makes any sense, I think you just, as things get worse and as the labs get worse, it kind of starts to take some things off the list or knock them a lot further down. What was your other question initially that you had, Justin? Uh, the severity of the labs, if that is higher likelihood of complications. Yeah. So a lot of people have looked at the correlation between coronary artery aneurysms and what labs actually lead to predicting what's going to happen. Actually, that was the only board exam question I had on Kawasaki disease, which was which of the following are associated with coronary artery aneurysms and Kawasaki disease? And let me tell you, the answer was thrombocytopenia with low platelets, right? So I'm just putting that out there for everybody listening. This is a board question. I don't write the board, but this is my question. So, <laughs> so it turns out that extremes are bad. And so for platelets, super low or super high. So for example, we have kids that have a platelet count over a million. I've yet to see one without an aneurysm that has platelet counts over a million. Thrombocytopenia is also a harbinger of bad disease and coronary artery aneurysms. Hyponatremia is another thing. 
super high SED rate and um, CRP. But again, these are just kind of markers of like bad disease. And so several of these things are associated with the coronary artery aneurysms. And, and the problem is that we don't yet um, have the test that we'd all like to have, which is I would love to have a test that not only diagnoses KD, but tells me who is going to have bad KD from a genetic perspective, who has a genetic predisposition, but I don't have that test yet. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that kind of rolls into the next question really well, which is kind of like, what are the risk factors for Kawasaki disease? I mean, it's hard to know who's going to have really bad, but is there anything kind of off the bat that affects, I guess, your pretest probability that this person might yep. have KD more than some other pathology? Yep. So one thing we haven't talked about yet, which I think is really important, is ethnicity and race. So we have to first understand that if you ask somebody what their ethnicity and race is and you know they declare it themselves, they're probably not exactly right, right? We really... If we all do 23andMe, we're an admixture of stuff. But it turns out that self-declared ethnicity and race is really predictive of, of what could happen. So, so here in San Diego, a few years ago, um, my colleague and I realized that we were seeing a lot of kids that were very sick with KD, and they all happened to be Filipino. And we were just like, wait a minute, how is it that we have a lot of patients with Kawasaki disease? But the kids that we're seeing in the unit that we're bringing in with myocardial dysfunction and aneurysms seem to be more of Filipino background. And so we actually did a, you know, kind of a look back at all of our patients. And it turned out that not only the incidence, but the severity of KD, at least in our population here in San Diego, for our Filipino patients was they had a higher risk of KD and worse Kawasaki disease than any other ethnic and racial group that we have. Now, we don't have, I mean, we have patients of Japanese origin here, but not as many as we do Filipino or Korean families. And so, you know, I think it's important to look at it globally, but also, frankly, a little bit locally, depending on the flavor of disease. So one example, another example is African-American families. They have a predisposition for having KD more frequently and even more severe disease. The other thing that's super key is age. So it turns out that if you were less than six months old and you have Kawasaki disease, even if you're treated with IVIG in the first 10 days of illness, you have a 50% chance of having an aneurysm, even if I diagnosed you early and I treated you correctly. So there's something about those children I'm not quite sure what, what it is, but it is well described by our group, by other groups. We've done this in Latin America, same outcome, less than six months of age, it's not good. And they get diagnosed later because they're missed. Um, it, something, sometimes things can be a little bit more subtle or people are thinking a little bit differently. They think the sterile pyure is a UTI, they go down that route. The other extreme of age is the older kids. So you can have KD, anytime during your pediatric age. Basically, the youngest we've seen is about five weeks old. And then we had a young man in the military last year diagnosed with Katie that had I not seen the photos, I never would have believed it. I was like, what? So you can have extremes of age. So when we have teenagers, people are thinking all sorts of other stuff. And so then they don't diagnose them early and they can miss um, the stuff going on in their heart. I have a quick follow-up question. There was an article that came out very recently in Journal of Pediatrics that was looking at 
Kawasaki disease and health disparities among black children. And it was a paper that we talked a lot about in our group. And they tried to control for certain racial differences in time to diagnosis and initial treatment. But to your point, in in knowing that race is not a good proxy for genetics, is there a possibility, is there thought that these are other social structure barriers, toxic stress, or some other type of disparity that's presenting itself in our kind of almost forced categorization sometimes? Yeah. So it certainly could be. I think what's important to understand, though, and and we did this with our population here looking at our Latino population. So it turns out that in San Diego County, if you are of Latino background, you're more likely to be missed for KD. But we asked an, an interesting question. How many medical providers did you go see? And I have to say the fault was really not that often on the, the parental guardian side. These are families that know that their child is ill and they'll repeatedly seek medical care. Now, this kind of care that they're seeking, at least here in, in our area, can be kind of confusing because they may actually travel across the border and seek medical care both here and in Mexico. And, you know, if different providers are seeing, even within a practice, if different providers are seeing the kids and no one's communicating or reading each other's notes or even has access to somebody else's medical records, you may never know that he had red eyes a few days ago and now those are gone and now he's got the rash, he's got, you know, the red lips and the swollen hands and feet, but you didn't hear about the red eyes, so you never thought about it, right? So one of the issues that we find is that these parents and guardians are going to multiple providers. They may be going to several different providers, and that makes it complicated. They're just not being diagnosed in many cases. It's like they're staying at home. They're seeking medical care. They're just not being diagnosed. So I think that it's, it's so many different layers that you're right. It's not all just tied up in race and ethnicity. Thank you for that. Let's say that we have a patient who does seek care and they are coming into the emergency department. Sure enough, they have fever. They have erythema, not just the dots on the palms and soles. They have a rash that is worse in the GU areas. They have the limbic sparing conjunctival injection. They have some erythema and lips tracking, but no pharyngeal exudates. And they have unilateral cervical lymphadenopathy that is about you know two centimeters or more. We feel very comfortable that this is. Kawasaki's. We get labs too because we're in the emergency department and they have signs of inflammation, ESR, CRP, low albumin, the negative phase reactant. With this kid in front of us, what is our step in triaging? What needs to be done? And what's our first step in treatment? And how urgent um, is that treatment? So once you think you've got a kid with Kawasaki disease, the next step is to get that kid admitted and IVIG hung at the bedside, ASAP. So there's always a delay. There's always an issue with bed availability at any hospital. And I think it's just important to be cognizant that while it's not like you need to get this done in the next hour, like sepsis with with antimicrobials, that it is important to make sure that you get the bed request that you put that in and that you get the kid upstairs ASAP. Part of what happens in KD, going back to the discussion we had about the myocardium, is that in some children, there can be myocardial dysfunction, where if you're giving that kid a lot of fluids, they can actually develop some signs of early congestive heart failure. 
So especially the urgency comes up in the children who are shocky. If you're kind of even deliberating between toxic shock and KD and the resuscitation appropriately in toxic shock is to give a lot of fluids. You have to be mindful that Kawasaki disease could be on the list. And if you're leaning more towards KD for any reason, then the answer is get that kid upstairs, especially if they're going to the ICU and get the IVIG going ASAP. That really, that's, that's the, the number one thing that's been shown to make a difference in terms of the vasogenic shock that happens in KD and in helping the myocardium pump better, reducing inflammation and reducing the risk of the coronary artery aneurysms. So it's, you know, it can be a few hours if, if it's a child that's, you know, normotensive. But within our ED, what I usually say is, okay, thank you. You've made the diagnosis of KD shock. Now either get them upstairs or commit a nurse one-to-one in your ED, which they don't like to do, to give them IVIG at the bedside. That usually gets them admitted pretty quickly. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. So I think we can say that, you know, you made that call. She's gotten admitted to the inpatient unit. Um, Poor poor Ruby gets some high-dose aspirin and IVIG. Um, she gets an initial echo. It doesn't show any coronary artery aneurysms at this point. She gets some treatment, um, but about 40 hours afterwards, she starts to have a fever again. The nurse kind of calls you and is like, she's she's having this fever again. What do you want to do, doctor? Um, so you kind of talked about some of the complications, but um, when the fever comes back or kind of throughout the hospital stay, so you talked about the myocardial dysfunction, you kind of talked about other complications and the aneurysms, but is there anything else that we should be looking out for during their stay other than the aneurysms and the heart issues? Yeah. So it's great that that kid has a normal echo. And I will ask everybody to to learn what a Z-score is and to make sure that when that echo comes back, that it has Z-scores for the coronary arteries on it. And then if it doesn't, that you go back to your lovely pediatric cardiologist and you ask for those Z-scores to be done. Because I think it's important to have those numbers so that you can follow that over time. You know, just an echo report that says normal doesn't really help us. So that's the first thing. So once you've got your Z-scores and if they're less than two for the coronary arteries, then you're good to go in that direction. But now you got the issue that we always worry about, which is recrudescence of fever. So there are a couple important things here. One is the timing of the fever. And the second thing is how the fever is taken. So the timing of the fever, if you finish the IVIG, we usually say that you've got about 36 hours from the end of the IVIG infusion, where in that time, if you get another fever, it may predict that things will happen later, but it really doesn't link itself to having an increased risk for aneurysms. Those first 36 hours are kind of like your body's adjusting, let the IVIG take some effect, let it kick in, and let's see if you've got more fever. If after 36 hours from the end of the IVIG infusion, the fever recrudesces, and that to me is a temp of 38 degrees Celsius or more, that is actually linked to an increased risk of aneurysms. So if you respond to IVIG, meaning you're either your fever goes away or no fever after 36 hours from the end of the IVIG infusion, you have a 5% chance of aneurysms. If you don't get treated, it's 25%. And if you get treated, but you get that fever after 36 hours, it's a 15% aneurysm risk, right? So somewhere smack in the middle. Now, the question about how you take the temperature, I think is really important. So what we've been able to, to look at over time is how do we take fever in kids and what's the most reliable way to take a temperature. 
So I don't believe in mood rings. And that to me is that thing, that magic wand across the forehead, right? And I think it's really important for us when you take the temperature to take it centrally as much as possible. So that is in the older child in the mouth. And for the younger child, the, you know, diaper, the, the child's still in diapers, that's a rectal temp, right? So it's important that you're taking it as centrally as possible so that you get the right measurement in those children. This is great. And so if a recrudescence occurs, um, can we, let's talk about other treatments. Is it yeah. uh, another IVIG? Do we, we also had mentioned the aspirin. Can we talk about the importance of that? Or yeah. then yeah. when do you pull the, the prednisone and flipsimab, some yeah. of these other fancier medications that we don't, we don't do outpatient too often. Yep. So the first thing in terms of aspirin, so we give high dose aspirin, which is about 30 to 50 milligrams per kilo per day divided Q6 that gets given during the acute illness in the hospital. That's an anti-inflammatory level of aspirin. Once they go home, you knock that down to either 40.5 milligrams, half a tab or 81 milligrams. If they're usually above like age three or four years old. All right. And that's an antiplatelet level so that those platelets don't stick together and cause a clot in case there's something going on in the coronaries. In regards to the additional anti-inflammatory therapy, it's a bit of anyone's guess as to what you should give. So there has not yet been a study, although we're designing it, that looks at what is the best treatment to give for IVIG-resistant Kawasaki disease, right? So we've determined the kids resistant to IVIG because they've had fever more than 36 hours from the end of the infusion. Now, what do you give them? And there's a whole laundry list that so people give steroids, second IVIG, infliximab, you know, kind of pick your drug of choice. In regards to IVIG, we just finished a study here comparing second IVIG to infliximab. And we're actually analyzing those data right now. So it, we don't even have any results right now. But the reason we did the study was because a second dose of IVIG raises the risk of hemolytic anemia because there's anti-A and anti-B in IVIG. And if you happen to be not O blood type, then you do run a risk of hemolytic anemia. And no one really wants to see a super low crit in their KD patient, even if they're otherwise okay. So that study will be coming out hopefully in the next few months. And that will answer the question as to, is there an increased risk um, or any safety issues with the second dose of IVIG? In regards to steroids versus infliximab, again, we're designing that trial to put those head to head if you fail IVIG, but yet nobody's done that. And so we don't know which one of those medications is better. And so it's really up to kind of where you live, who you're attending, what they feel comfortable with, what they've studied, what they know. And we have our cocktail here and kind of the East Coast has their cocktail and we don't know which one's better, basically. What, what do you guys, I trust you. What do you guys go with? <laughs> what's, your, what's your number two? Great. All the East Coast people are going to run over and tell like, you know, the head of the cardiology or immunology or rheumatology department somewhere back east. Well, you know, Dr. Tremblay doesn't believe it. And yeah. That's right. So, so my cocktail, so the first thing, so our go-to here is actually infliximab. And, and we have a lot of experience with this TNF alpha blocker. We, we did, you know, the initial phase one study, we did the phase three in conjunction with actually nationwide children's a few years ago. And we looked at 
IBIG resistant KD patients. And, you know, we learned a lot about the, the safety of infliximab. In fact, we learned so much that I'm, that it is now an approved drug for Kawasaki disease in Japan. So, which is super great to see. It's not labeled for that here, but we use so much stuff off label. We don't need it labeled in the U.S. It's all good. <laughs> but so we, we feel very comfortable with infliximab and it's a single dose. We actually give 10 milligrams per kilo. It turns out that because you gave IVIG first, there's some dynamics issue where, especially in the kids with coronary artery aneurysms, you want to bump up their anti-TNF alpha levels by giving them a little bit more. So we give them 10 milligrams per kilo as a single IV dose we really don't see a lot of side effects, gratefully. If that doesn't work and you're still having fevers or if your coronaries are getting worse, we then move on to cyclosporin. And we use cyclosporin because of the biology of Kawasaki disease, where we've learned that there's actually a pathway, the calcineurin pathway that's inhibited by um, cyclosporin. And it turns out that that's disproportionately upregulated in patients with KD. So we figure if the science tells us that there's a lot of TNF-alpha and there's a lot of that calcineurin pathway, then that should be what we block. That being said, my East Coast colleagues use a lot of steroids for these same patients. And those patients, as far as we know, don't really have any major differences, you know, than ours when we've looked at it retrospectively, right? And then some, and then they use other stuff for a second line after that. But it's really just, you know, anybody's call right now with those, with that set of medications. I, let's say in this patient, we give our second cocktail, we give infliximab. They do a little bit better, but either on the initial echo or on a follow-up echo, we do see coronary artery aneurysms. Mm-hmm. For KD related, is there any different treatment when we find them? Is, is, is it unique in any way? Yeah. So, so the first question is like, when you see that, what should you do in terms of anti-inflammatories? And that kind of depends on the timing, actually. So another medication that we've used quite a bit here is anakinra, which is an IL-1 inhibitor, but that seems to be that it works. The kinetics of the disease are such that IL-1 is really high initially. And so if you're early in the window of a patient, anakinra may be a good choice to kind of hit them hard if you see those aneurysms kind of early. Whereas if you're already a few days out and, and you're kind of going down that, oh, we got a second or third echo in the hospital and now it's abnormal and they've gotten, you know, IVIG plus steroids or IVIG plus infliximab, it may be a little bit late to be adding that. So that's when we would think about adding cyclosporin. The other piece of it is, of course, the anticoagulation. So you've got aspirin on board. And then this is why it's important to have a Z-score on the coronaries. If your Z-score is, you know, you're seeing like a small aneurysm, but it's not giant. So the Z-score is like less than 10. We'll actually put the kids not only on low dose, we'll lower their dose of aspirin, but we'll put them on Plavix. So we'll put them on dual antiplatelet therapy. But then once their Z-score gets greater than 10, the flow dynamics in the artery are just messed up and you need to have them on true anticoagulation. So that's where people turn to things like Lovenox, right? And so um, that, you know, you have to just be thinking about uh, not only their inflammatory component, but the anticoagulation as well. In regards to your question about follow-up, what I would say is that this is a, a hot topic 
In fact, we're writing a paper right now that's under review for uh, transition of care and the follow-up in children with Kawasaki disease. So the follow-up issue is really important because unfortunately, we do, we do a great job inpatient, but then the kids go outpatient and they go a million different places. I would say that it's really important to kind of try to bridge that gap between inpatient and outpatient. You know, with many diseases, including Kawasaki disease, we have more of a gap than a bridge. Um, and, you know, it's really important that we, you know, we've done this great job inpatient and then we're like, oh, we're done, we sent them home. It's like, oh, no, 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 you've barely gotten started. You have to make sure that that patient has appropriate follow-up, that there's a group of people that are invested in, in knowing what to do and how to follow that patient long-term. And then the even bigger leap is when they go to, from being you know, a young adult, from being a teenager to a young adult, and that leap at that point too. So, so me as a pediatrician and actually med peds also seeing yes. adults. Yeah. So if I'm, if I see a kid who, you know, I'm, they didn't have good follow-up, so they were discharged. I'm getting good follow-up. They, they moved in the middle of being discharged. I don't know. So yeah. they're in my clinic. What, what can I best do for them as their pediatrician? What should right. I do for them as a pediatrician? And then what should I do afterwards during their transition from, from childhood to adulthood? Yep. Yeah. So what's important is that every child that goes home from the hospital with a diagnosis of Kawasaki disease should be seen within the next two weeks, like a week or two, and have another echo done. And so that could be for kids less than three years of age, they may need sedation for their echo, and that has to be coordinated. And then the other piece of it is they went home on aspirin. Now you got to figure out when they're going to come off the aspirin. And you want their echo as an outpatient as well as their labs to be pretty normal. So you don't want them to be to have any thrombocytosis and you want to make sure that their sed rate's normal pretty much before they come off of their aspirin. So if this kid pops into your clinic and you're going, well, what's their follow-up? They not only need to have a follow-up echo, and that's all of them at two, between like one to two weeks later, and then also have some labs to follow up inflammation. What happens after that depends a lot on what happened in those first two weeks, right? So if they had normal echoes, we actually then see them back at a year. And we see all kids, if you've had normal echoes, we'll still see you, once you see you at the year, we'll see you every five years until you get to go off to college. That's rather rare. And in fact, the AHA KD guidelines that were revised and came out in 2017 give some leniency in that, that if you're really normal in the hospital and normal at your first outpatient echo, a lot of kids are discharged from care at that time. That makes me frankly a little nervous, but I understand that, you know, that, that may be the practice in some places, but that two week follow-up visit is really critical. So if someone went home and they didn't get a follow-up echo, they need to be plugged into whatever clinic it is that they can get that through. And traditionally, most places don't have a KD clinic, although more and more places are getting kind of this, you know, multidisciplinary approach where the ID doc sees them in combination with the cardiologist. And that really works very, very well. Yeah. Um, sorry, just to say the other piece sure. is you asked about transition of care. And I think this is even a wide, this is like a chasm. This is like a crevasse that exists. 
in our medical care in general, but very much so with Kawasaki disease. So any patient that's had an aneurysm, um, and that by definition is really a Z-score more than 2.5, but we're talking like the, the, the kids that have more coronary artery involvement. Um, for the most part, I mean, this is kind of like a blanket statement and there's, there's different nuances here, but anybody who's been diagnosed with an aneurysm needs to be referred to an adult cardiologist. And there needs to be a discussion because it's not fair to that adult cardiologist that some kid shows up without medical record, no communication. Maybe they don't even have an interest in Kawasaki disease or no training. They may be interested, but they've never seen a kid in follow-up that's had you know, aneurysms. So these are the kinds of discussions that we're starting to really push on with our pediatric colleagues to say, hey, who do you identify? And you're the, you're the Kawasaki expert at your hospital. You're the one that everyone turns to. Great, you've got a KD clinic, great. Now you've got this patient. They're about to go off to college. Who are you gonna refer them to? Because you know it doesn't end there if they had a history of giant aneurysms. So that's where you really need to know who in your community is that advocate? Who is that person who's interested and really understands that this is not atherosclerosis, right? That the interventional cardiology perspective here may be different. You don't just go in and stent it as you would with adult disease because you may have a huge clot that's formed over time. And so that piece is something that we're just starting to really push on. And I encourage people to, to ask that question. So glad we have a KD clinic, but now where are they going to go and graduate to after they're done with me? One of the questions about the coronary aneurysms for me, is there a normal distribution curve of when you would see them in that a lot of times I feel like we do it on day five and on discharge and after because we're worried we're going to miss it. And it sounds like even if it's up to five years after um, you're worried about some manifestation of disease, is there any guidance on how often we should be doing echoes or at what point we feel at least pretty safe that if there was yeah. going to be any aneurysm, it would have occurred? Yeah. So you're going to see the majority of the disease, pretty much all of it within the first two weeks or so, somewhere in that two to, you know, two to few weeks range. And it's usually early. So if you don't go from having a normal echo in the hospital that was a good echo that was well done. So for the little kids below age three, that may mean that means a sedated echo potentially. Um, for the most part, you really have a great echo and it was totally normal. You're not going to get giant aneurysms usually a week later. You're going to see something there for the most part. There's some exceptions with the super little kids less than six months of age, but just in general. So there is a, a lovely paper that was published that asked this exact same question, which is when do we see most of the damage? And it turns out that you see like 85 to 90% of the coronary artery damage you're going to see by date illness eight, right? Which is why it's important to get one in the hospital and then one in that one to two week range after you go home. Okay. And if there's super little kids, we usually say like, do that second, that outpatient echo just a little sooner, right? Like around a week or so, because we unfortunately get calls like once a month where it was, oh, I had this patient, you know, from some, you know, anywhere around the country, they'll call and go, oh, I had this patient and they were less than six months of age and we got a normal echo in the hospital and we saw them three weeks later and they now have a giant aneurysm. That can happen in a little baby, but most of the time you're not that surprised. 
And it is, there are some kids that you diagnose super early. So again, going back to, you don't need to have just five days of fever to diagnose KD. We've had children on day three of illness of fever with florid clinical Kawasaki disease. And it turns out that those kids have a higher risk of resistance and aneurysms. And it's not because you, so there was a paper that came out years ago that said, oh, you treated them too early. That was a problem. No, 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 no. They're sicker. <laughs> They're more inflamed. It's higher to, It's harder to put out the fire with two grams per kilo that we gave somebody on day seven that looked the same, right? Because it took them a week to get there. It took this kid zero to you know three days to look awful. So if a child's presenting super early, especially if they're young, it's not unreasonable in like an infant to do a second echo if they show up super early before they leave the hospital. Again, just use your clinical gestalt. I always say I, I a lot of times do what allows me to sleep at night. And so if you know the risks, if you've got a little six-month-old Filipino male, because males actually also get worse aneurysms than females below a year of age, then, you know, I may do a second echo before they leave the hospital. This is great. I think we can try to do some wrap-up questions, but are there any things that you think that we're missing? I think what I will add in is for those that are med-peds or are going to be seeing some young adults, that it's important to understand that there are certainly children that were missed when they were little and that they can present later on in life, like in their mid-20s or 30s, with chest pain. And there are a million causes for chest pain. But it turns out that we did a study here where we looked at, in our county, we looked at young adults less than age 40 who went into the emergency room complaining of chest pain and ended up having a coronary angiogram done. And it turns out that 5% of those patients were found to have coronary artery damage compatible with the aneurysms from KD. Some of those patients knew they had Kawasaki disease and some didn't. So, you know, it's just important for people to be mindful of the causes of chest pain in young adults. You know, a non-smoker, non-drug using, athletic, 20, 30 year old, you may say, well, you know, is this anxiety? What, what are the things? But just to kind of add um, to the list, you know, my husband's an ER doc and he knows that if he misses KD in one of his young adults, he sleeps on the couch, right? Yeah, so <laughs> very high risk for him. That's that's high risk, that's, a, that's, you know, dangerous. So, but just something to just, just to think about. I think one question I, I wanted to make sure that we touch upon in terms of diagnosis and your differentials before we leave is, it's actually a little callback to our previous episode is the fact now we have this diagnosis called Miss C. And it's <laughs> obviously a, a, a very, I'm, I'm going to encourage our listeners to go back and listen to that full episode because obviously we talked a lot about it. Are there any, any specific points that you want to talk about now to at least help us in, in this Kawasaki case as we're talking today in terms of Miss C? You had to bring it up, Chris, didn't you? <laughs> so there is, so, so what I've learned in the last, oh, how many months now? Nine months that we've had a whole gestational period that we've had of having both Miss C and KD with us. We've learned some interesting things. So number one, we've noticed that the cases of 
common classic Kawasaki disease have somehow gone down around the globe, it appears. And we're not quite sure why. And we don't know if it has to do with if you think that there are environmental risks for KD, is it because we're all stuck at home and not driving around? If there's something that is contagious from some of the triggers, you know, is that we're all at home and, and that's one of the reasons. So some intriguing things that are happening with Kawasaki disease as we live this COVID moment. We know that there are the classic KD patients still. And let me tell you, when I can walk in a room and just diagnose KD and not be worrying about Missy, I'm a very happy lady. And there are the kids that are classic myocardial dysfunction, had, you know, COVID, had SARS-CoV-2 exposure a month ago, classic Missy. Then there's this thing in the middle that I really don't know what it is that is some overlap between Missy and Kawasaki disease. And I have to say that the science will eventually tell us which patient has what. We're doing some work with looking at antibody responses. And we have found in our own patients where we thought somebody had Kawasaki disease, and actually they have SARS-CoV-2 antibodies to something that wasn't picked up on our regular nuclear capsid antibody test. And then we've had patients where we swore they had Miss C, even though the nuclear capsid antibody tester was negative, and we sent it off for looking at all the antibodies against the SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus, and it's been all negative. So maybe they were Kawasaki disease. So we had those that we feel very comfortable with clinically, and then we have kind of monkey in the middle. And I think the important thing here is really a couple of things. First of all, the saving grace right now is that we kind of treat them both the same, even though there are some differences. But I think also the important piece is going back to what we discussed before is really continuity of follow-up. And it's not losing track of those patients and, and, and being honest with yourself that you kind of may not know, but you're going to follow this patient up. And the MISC patients get followed up a little bit more frequently because they have more myocardial dysfunction. And we really don't know enough about that disease as compared to KD. So I think that it's a bit murky. We're getting better at telling the difference. But I think that there's definitely some overlap for maybe immunological reasons. Um, and that eventually the science will tell us enough to start to really pull these apart even further. Thank you. A quick, simple follow-up question that we should have done right from the beginning. Obviously, we know that Miss C comes from COVID-19 virus. What's the what's the virus or what's the pathogen that causes Kawasaki's again? I don't know because you're an ID. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't I don't know, Justin. But when you get that, can you can you please yeah. let me know and you'll win your Nobel Prize? All right. Yeah. So I'm, I'm on the so, lookout. Yeah. So um, there's a long list of things that we think are not associated with being the trigger. And actually the coronavirus was on the list for, for, for years. And, and who knows with this whole Missy thing, if they're anywhere in there as a trigger. What I will say is that there may be multiple triggers for KD. And it's a big thing that we're trying to pursue to understand. But as of yet, we don't know the actual cause or causes of Kawasaki disease. Well, we can't let you leave on that note. So I, <laughs> yeah, we will we will move on and let you kind of 
what are the main take-home points for our listeners here? And what do you really want them to walk away knowing? And, you know, if they had to, you know, commit them, some things from to memory, what would, what would those be for you? Yeah. So I think that the first thing, and it sounds super simple, but I don't think we do it often enough, is to really grab a chair, sit down, and take a detailed history from the family. Find out if any of these signs that we think about with Kawasaki disease, the classic five, if they were there over the last few days, if they're on mom's magical iPhone, if it's been you know fleeting and was there a few days ago, maybe seen by the pediatrician, but now it's gone. So that so when in doubt, take a good history. The second piece is um, really taking a detailed, doing a detailed physical exam, and looking for things that we talked about with you know the eyes, and we didn't even talk about the tongue, but you know, are the white papillae of the tongue gone, which is what we see, which is a true strawberry tongue. You know, is there exudative pharyngitis that may make me think about other things other than Kawasaki disease, um, the, the qualities of the rash. So really taking the time to speak to the family and examine the child, first thing. The next piece is the assessment of you took all this information, now what do you think is on your list? And so I'm not asking that you diagnose every febrile child with Kawasaki disease. I'm asking that you consider KD and you, that you're thoughtful in your assessment, that you can say, this goes along with it, that doesn't. We're going to go with this being this illness first, but maybe we get some other stuff back that says, no, it's not that or the child didn't get better on the antibiotics for their cervical lymphadenopathy. And now they have rash and red eyes, but no, it's not an allergic reaction. It's actually KD. So it's just about having it on the list and keeping an open mind. I think those to me are the kind of the fundamentals of this illness. And that's where we run into problems is when we don't think about it and we don't keep an open mind about it. The other thing I will add is that this is a diagnosis that anyone can make. And I do actually encourage people to bring it up, you know, during rounds and to have a discussion with, you know, something like, the, for example, the nursing staff. They're there much more than we are. We have had nurses that call our KD team directly because they tried to bring up Kawasaki disease during rounds and nobody listened. And they're like, this is Kawasaki disease. We've had medical students that know the diagnosis and are too shy to bring it up as the differential. And everyone's circling around and going around a million things. No, no, it can't be. And the medical student was correct because they had more time and went in and took the history and sat down and weren't running around doing a million other things and made you know had a good physical exam and were able to diagnose that patient. You know, we've had patients diagnosed on Facebook because of desperate parents posting pictures. We had kids that were diagnosed in, you know, when we all used to take our kids to the grocery store, which we don't do anymore. You know, the kids in the grocery cart looking awful, but mom's there with the kid. We've had grandmas from other children with Kawasaki disease stop moms and say, oh my gosh, your child looks ill. All those signs are Kawasaki disease, right? So this is like a diagnosis that again is clinical and it just needs to have a good clinical eye and be thoughtful about it. I hope so. that one day I diagnose a relatively rare disease in the grocery store. <laughs> I, that is something I will aspire to, to do. 
Well, I look forward to the day when we can all take our kids back to the grocery store. Uh, I know. Store and back to Costco for samples, right? Yeah. And and then we can walk around and diagnose each other's children with, you know, preventable or like curable diseases, right? So that's the dream. The dream. Yeah. The dream is to diagnose Chris's children with uh with common diseases. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding, Chris. I, I hope your children are very healthy. They get a lot of common diseases. Yeah. <laughs> that's fine. Chris has Chris has like six adorable children. Four. Only four. Four. 10, 10 adorable children. Yeah, but yeah. You're outnumbered. Yeah, That's just, you're just outnumbered. Yeah. yeah. I had to stop it too because I said to my husband, we're not going to be outnumbered. I refuse to be. You yeah, take yeah. one, I take one. That's it. An even fight. Well, we play zone defense most of the time, <laughs> so it's all right. Um, this was so wonderful. Thank you so, so much for joining us. I learned a ton about Kawasaki and have a ton of pearls to walk away from. I think this is going to be an enormously helpful episode uh, for med students, residents, and attendings alike. Hopefully, I appreciate it. I look forward to getting comments as I walk down the hall. Hey, I know that makes me so happy. Yeah. Uh, cool. You guys are to be commended for the work that you do. So I really appreciate it as always. Thank you so much. That's really, really appreciated. I'll come back on when we figure out what what causes Kawasaki. Perfect. Yeah, you will. You'll be the first person not asked when that happens. The Nobel sure. Prize acceptance speech yeah. will be on <laughs> yeah, be, be the, our first Nobel. Prize. I have to go do an interview with the Cribsiders first. I'll be. Yeah. I'll be with there you. There you go. Yeah, that's that's where we're gonna announce it. Yeah. Um, this has been so great. Thank you so much. It's great to have you back again. Um, Likewise, it's good to talk with you guys. I appreciate it as always. This has been another episode of The Cribsiders. It's for the kids. Get show notes at thecribsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list called Knowledge Food Formula Feeds to get our <laughs> weekly show notes in your inbox. We are committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, Review with the show on Apple Podcast. It means a lot to us. Or feel free to contact us at thecribsiders at gmail.com. Send us anything. A special thanks to our producer tonight, this episode, Dr. Nick Lee. Thanks to all of you for joining. Uh, I, tonight, have been Dr. Justin Lee Burke. I'm Nick Lee. And this has been Chris the Chi Manchu. Thank you. Good night. Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.